0: The Schizophrenic 60s. Fads. Part 1. Well, let's start with bumper stickers and buttons. Make love, not war. Draft beer, not boys. Tune in, turn on, drop out. Most of the nostalgic slogans of the 60s came from not from radical leaders, but from the lapel pins worn by millions of their followers. Hire the morally handicapped. America has gone the pot. The human chest became a billboard for ideas radical and revolutionary, and young people festooned with buttons became walking graffiti. It was the protesters' way wearing their hearts on their sleeves. The button craze followed on the heels of the early 60s mania for car bumper stickers, which, because older people owned cars, were usually more conservative. God bless America, support your local police. The button was the hippies' equivalent of the bumper sticker. Buttons cost pennies and were passed around as often as marijuana joints. If the slogan was not against war, it was in favor of sex, cure virginity. If it feels good, do it. And there were the -the out-of-the-closet homosexual buttons. Love is a many-gendered thing. As the craze spread into the 70s and across middle America, one wore buttons not so much for the espousal of a cause, but because it became the in-thing to do. Consequently, slogans got sillier. J. Edgar Hoover sleeps with a nightlight. Mary Poppins is a junkie. Later, sex teamed up with environmentalism. Save water, shower with a friend. In June 1970, California Zodiac killer, who claimed to have killed ten people, wrote to newspapers that he'd blow up a school bus unless city officials distributed Zodiac buttons about him. If you don't want me to have this blast, I would like to see some nice Zodiac buttons wandering around your town. It would cheer me up considerably. Thank you. The buttons were not new in the 60s. In 1896, the first celluloid buttons appeared as part of the year's presidential campaign between McKinley and Bryan. Celluloid was a relatively new material and laying over it a printed piece of paper atop a metal disc made for a novel and durable memento, and it was an effective way of showing one's political affiliation. During the 20s, tin lithographed buttons were the rage of political campaigns, but it took the turbulent times of the 60s to transform campaign buttons into badges of all kinds for laurels and laments. A New York store owner was arrested for selling obscene buttons, of which the most printable read, Pornography is fun. Many high schools in the country banned the wearing of buttons, as the button craze was dying out in the mid-70s. President Gerald Ford had tens of thousands of red Win Buttons, Whip Inflation Now, to support the Whip Inflation Now program. He'd have done better having the slogan printed on t-shirts. Because at the time, they were the newest manifestation of walking graffiti. I used to make buttons in the late 60s and early 70s, but they weren't with slogans. They were science fiction characters. Star Trek, when Star Wars came out, Star Wars. And I used to go to conventions and make some money selling them for 50 cents a piece. It was quite fun. Waterbeds. In 1968, California furniture designer Charles Pryor Hall was attempting to construct a super comfortable chair filled with a liquid starch that would conform to a body of any shape. Popular at the time was vinyl beanbag furniture, which Hall found too stiff for his liking, and an air-inflated balloon chairs, which Hall felt were too soft. His incredible creeping chair, so named because it supported a slowly enveloped and caressed the sitter, made of vinyl and filled with 300 pounds of liquid starch. As he sat in his creation, he could not—he was not so much caressed as devoured by the wraparound blob. It wasn't until Hall literally laid down on the job that he realized liquid-filled furniture ideally should be in the shape of a bed. After a few nights sleep on an experimental waterbed, Hall concluded that water got uncomfortably cold. The mattress became an ice pack, so he designed a heater for the bed then a patch kit for repairing leaks. By 1970, he had perfected to his own standards what became known as the waterbed. With the dawning of the age of Aquarius, in other words, from Latin, the water carrier, a bed of water seemed suitable and in tune with the times. The beds first appealed to two diverse sectors of society, members of the counterculture and the jet-setting super-rich. Playboy publisher Hugh Hefner installed a lavish king size model in his Chicago mansion. Las Vegas hotels made them features of their luxury suites. Most of the middle America, though, worried about the potential problems of having two tons of water on a second-floor bedroom. Indeed, good housekeeping did not give its seal of approval to the beds. Instead, it related nightmares of owners whose floors had collapsed under the weight of the beds and whose electrical circuitry had shorted out because of the leaks. These fears were further fanned by popular accounts in newspapers which focused on the horrors Charles Hall never imagined. Charles Hall was lucky that the counterculture followers, who on the average could not afford waterbeds, were on the wane when he patented his invention in 1971. On the rise were 70s singles who had both money and freewheeling lifestyles to make the most of the bed called Pleasure Island that responded to their every movement ironically hall's quest for a comfortable easy chair to snooze in produced the preeminent sex symbol of the swinging singles era a bed to do everything in except sleep advertising slogans like love in liquid luxury and the ultimate wet dream did not trouble charles hall he became a multi-millionaire disposable diapers here today still here tomorrow is the modern environmentalist slogan for the kind of disposable diaper Procter & Gamble introduced in 1961 under the name of Pampers. That year, disposables captured 1% of the market. In 1990, they accounted for 85% of the $3.5 billion diaper industry. Expressed another way, about 8 million American babies under the age of 30 months wear disposables, accounting for the 1.5 billion diapers tossed in the garbage every year. In the 60s, though, no one dreamed that one day diapers would be overrunning landfills. A bane to the environment. Pampers and its competitors seemed like mom's way to join the decade's cultural revolution. Teens were being told by Timothy Leary to turn on, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Clothing styles were changing yearly. Hair was growing longer. Social concepts became more radical. Music headed towards acid rock, and where there was the American mom changing diapers, soaking diapers in bleach, hanging diapers on the clothesline to air dry. It was tedious, hated, and thankless task. The Pampers seemed a welcome solution. Consumer reports surveying the competition, which included Sears Honeysuckle Disposables, Montgomery Ward's Tiny World, and Johnson & Johnson's Chuck's rather than the best buy for the grist for Christmas gift, for the infant who has everything. Curity and Perma throwaway diapers adv- advised its readers, you'll probably want to use them regularly, but there are times you won't want to be without them. The post war baby boom had produced a diaper problem. In many suburban neighborhoods, diaper services sprang up in the fifties, offering mothers one alternative to coping with the sixty to one hundred diapers dirtied weekly by an infant for the first year of life. The services were expensive, as were early disposable diapers, about a dime a diaper, though by 1966 a pampered diaper was down to six cents. Early disposables were not perfectly absorbent or leak-proof, yet they filled the need. What's more, the cost of the diaper services also dropped, disposable diapers being the trendy modern way to treat an old age-old problem. By the 70s, when pampers were worn by almost half the babies in America, image-conscious parents automatically reached for pampers. A cloth diaper seemed not only inconvenient, but stodgily old-fashioned. In the late 80s, concerns about solid waste and the fact that a disposable diaper takes about 400 years to decompose would cause a rebirth in cloth diapers. Diaper services that managed not to go bankrupt in the 60s and 70s had waiting lists of families begging for their door-to-door service day a diaper service typically costs $11 a week, in contrast to about $15 for disposables. An idea of the 50s, nearly killed off by a trend for anything throwaway, is making a strong comeback. Now my two children were born, the uh, first two months of each's birth, the, uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law bought us a week of two months of diaper service, which was great. Now next time we'll look at lava lights, black lights, day glow colors, and of course, woodstock. Now the source for this, Panati's Parade of Fads, Follies, and Manias, The Origins of Our Most Cherished Obsessions by Charles Panati. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment check out our merchandise and if you like what we're doing please feel free to support us thank you very much